This is Michael Govier from the Is It Safe podcast, and you are now clear for communication with Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 237, Lethal Weapon Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. It's been a few weeks, but last time out, we held our final pop culture fantasy draft of the 1980s. We wrapped up the decade with a draft of the year 1987. So Derek and I each chose a team of three movies, three TV shows, three songs, and one personal pick, and we sent the lists off to our judges. They've rendered a verdict. And then we each get also get to pick one movie from our draft year for us to rewatch and review. It was my turn to start. Uh, so I decided that I'd review or we would, would watch and review 1987's Lethal Weapon. But before we get to all of that, Derek, what pop culture have you been able to get into in the past couple of weeks? And more importantly, what can you educate me on this week, Derek? All right. So I have had a lot of time. Because I think it's been almost three it's three or four weeks since we've done a, yeah. a, a new show. So I have a ridiculous amount of stuff. And if I go through it all in a great level of detail, this show is going to run seven hours. So I'm going to do speed round for a bunch of it, especially okay. the newer stuff that people are probably familiar with. I'll just sort of check the box and move on. But then there are a handful of things I do want to dive into. And you'll be glad to know there are a couple of documentaries which we'll cover at the end. Nice. All right. Let me start with TV. Okay. So I've had a chance to check out a couple of new shows, a couple of new series. Uh, First one was uh, dropped on Netflix a couple of weeks back. Big Mouth season six. Chris, I believe you started watching this. Yeah, I want to say that you got me onto it for the podcast here. And I watched maybe like two seasons of it. My wife didn't like it very much, but I liked it. I thought it was really good. I love the... The voice work in it, the writing in it is good. It's 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 kind of crude, but it's Very quite crude. funny. Like I, yeah. that's a good show. I like. It's that really one. strong. So season six dropped. In my opinion, it's every bit as good as the seasons that came before it. So if you're a fan of Big Mouth and you haven't already checked out season six, go ahead and do so. I strongly encourage you to do that. Um, they did a spinoff of Big Mouth. I believe it's called Human Resources between seasons five and season six of Big Mouth. You would be doing yourself a favor to watch that spinoff. Uh, series before coming into season six of Big Mouth, just because there's a lot of stuff that that is carried through. You don't need to watch it, but you might feel a little lost on a few of the story threads if you don't. Um, but anyway, it was very strong. I really enjoyed it. And it's been out probably three or four weeks now, so I, I assume a lot of our, our listeners have already watched it. Um, the latest season of The Crown dropped season five. I had a chance to watch that. I really enjoyed it. I thought the first two or three episodes were not that strong, but I felt the the sort of as the series went on, the episodes got a lot stronger. And even though it covered a period of time with the Royals from like the mid to late 80s to the mid 90s, and although I was aware of pop culture and current events at those times, 
I was at university, so I didn't really watch a lot of news. So a lot of the stuff that they talked about in those episodes were completely new to me, which I found very interesting and entertaining at the same time. I know they're not a perfect retelling of history, but I'm watching this to be entertained and I was really entertained. So if you uh, if you've watched the previous seasons of The Crown, you'll probably enjoy season five. I know I did. Check it out. It's on Netflix. Then we move into movies. Chris, have you had a chance to watch the Weird Al Yankovic movie? I have not. It's on one of the streaming services, though, I heard. It's on Roku. So it's called Weird, the Al Yankovic story. And the guy from Harry Potter is him. Yeah, Harry yeah. Potter plays Weird Al. It was great. I loved it. Now, I'm a big fan of Weird Al's music. I do know a fair bit about his professional life. And so I wasn't really sure what to expect with this movie, partly because, as you know, I don't generally watch trailers. So I didn't know what I was in for. It sort of took me a little by surprise to see sort of how it came together, but I felt it was really good. I don't really want to spoil it for people who haven't a chance to watch it yet, but it was definitely worth the watch. And if you are listening to this podcast, you probably enjoy 80s and 90s pop culture. I would say give it a go. But you got to give it at least 30 minutes because you may not really be digging how it begins, but I guarantee you're going to enjoy the payoff. So check it out. Weird, the Al Yankovic story. I give it a solid A. Two thumbs up from me. Now I'm going to run through speed round. Here's a bunch of stuff that I watch that that is newer. I don't have to dwell on it, but just, you know, people like to know what I'm watching. Um, when Harry Met Sally, another movie we've done on this podcast recently this year, yes. was on again. My wife and I were like, hey, look what's coming up next when uh, when Harry Met Sally. I'm like, well, why don't we just watch the beginning part? And again, we sat down and we watched the whole two hours. So again, a strong movie. We were happy to sit down and watch a second time. Well, not even a second time, a tw- 20th time. So that was fun. I had a chance to be a guest host on the Cinema 9 podcast a couple of weeks back, and we did The Truman Show with Jim Carrey from the mid-90s. That was my pick. So obviously I had to watch that in preparation for their podcast. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the Cinema 9 podcast, you should check it out. As If you want, you should start with my episode about The Truman Show from a couple of weeks back. Uh, again, Truman Show, great movie. Loved revisiting it and uh, had a great time discussing it with the good guys over at Cinema 9 Podcast. So uh, again, I won't go into that too much here, but if you have a chance, check out The Truman Show if you haven't seen it in a while and check out our, uh, our podcast over at Cinema 9 where we review it. Then I watched a couple of uh, older, well, older, quote unquote, older movies. Um, I watched a movie from, I think it was 1991, starring Scott Bakula of Quantum Leap fame called Necessary Roughness. Oh, Chris, I remember that one. I, don't, I never saw it, but it was like football or something, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah. they put out Major League in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And then Necessary Roughness was basically supposed to be like a football version of that college football where they had all these misfits came together. Even the logo for the movie was like this football with a face, sort of just like how the Major League one was the a play on the Cleveland's Indians logo. Mm-hmm. It's sort of similar to that. Like it was the same production company and they sort of went, hey, we have this other movie. Why don't we just copy it? It was okay, but it was kind of fun to revisit it. I hadn't seen it in at least 20 years. There was a lot of people in that movie that went on to do a lot of better things or were big when they were in that movie. And you're like, why is this person in this movie? Like they were clearly offered a ridiculous amount of money to just make an appearance. So again, a movie I hadn't seen in a long, long time. It's kind of fun to revisit. And then brand new, we went into the theater and we saw the latest offering from Marvel Cinematic Universe, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. 
Uh, Chris, I'm sure you have not seen this. No. Have you even watched Black Panther? No. The, oh my the, the only Marvel stuff I've watched is whatever you make me watch for this podcast. Okay, well, we'll, we'll have it. you watch Black Panther in the not right. future. But, yeah, but this it. sequel was pretty decent. Uh, the last few movies from Marvel have not really wowed me that much, but this one was pretty good. I had high expectations, as so many people did. I felt it met most of them. It's really long. It's like two hours and 40 minutes. I think it probably could have been pared back a little bit especially I think on a rewatch, some of the scenes and some of the sequences, you're going to be like, yeah, yeah. I, I remember this from the first time you're going to just fast forward through them, but there's a lot to like about this movie. It, it, it is Marvel. I wouldn't want to say at its best, but it is definitely one of the better, better Marvel offerings in the last couple of years. So definitely worth it. If you have a chance to see in the theater, by all means, check it out. I will say normally at the end of the Marvel movies, they have a little teaser for what's coming next. There is no teaser at the very end of this movie. There's like, a mid credit sequence and then a whole bunch of credits with nothing at the end. So don't sit through all the credits. If you go see it in the theater, you'll be disappointed. There's nothing at the end. Then, um, Chris, I had a chance on Turner classic movies to watch the Marx brothers in a night at the opera. Nice. I've been telling you to watch that movie. What'd you think? I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. It, it, to me, it reminded me of basically like, how how like a Saturday Night Live movie kind of works in the best possible ways though where it's like it almost felt like they put together a handful of sketches and went this sketch will work great mm. it's a five minute sequence where it's just great from start to finish and then they weaved a movie around these sequences and the movie was good but the sequences were amazing and so it, it, I mean I'm glad I watched it I don't necessarily know if it's the kind of movie I would want to watch again but you know, it's it was good. I enjoyed it. I mean, I assume you've seen it. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I I remember I recommended it when we talked about musicals. The the opera scenes in it not great. It's just used to tie the movie together, and like yeah. you said, it just ties together all these sort of sketches. But like the scene when they're in Groucho's stateroom on the oh, on the ship, that was the best scene for <laughs> I think sure. It's so funny. And then yeah. I also like the scene when him and Chico are talking about the the the, uh, the contract that they're going to do for the singer. Yeah. Or they're ripping parts of it they're off. They're ripping and, the parts of the contract. Uh, it's just, it's yeah. just so funny. Oh. And then there's a callback to that gag later in the movie. It's just yeah, the the parts that work work very very well, and you can really see that they're at the top of their game in some parts of this movie, and mm -hmm. you can really get a sense of. In the like, they came out in what, like the mid 1930s? Oh, it was like, like 1935, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So you got to think in the time when this came out, there was probably not a lot of other movies available. So like, you can really get a sense of in a field where there's not that much out there. Like these guys were doing radical things in a way that had never been done before, mm -hmm. and that has been copied for a hundred years since then. So absolutely, it was quite strong. Um, and then I've got two documentaries for you. Oh, nice. We haven't been able to to play this for a while, but here it goes. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watches documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. That reminds me, too, I got to write a new song at some point. Not to replace that one, but like I, I got to write some more songs. I've been well, maybe in the, the song. Maybe really. in the new year, yeah. I can get a couple of songs. Oh, that, you've been teasing that for years and you haven't yeah. done a damn thing yet. So we'll see. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll see. All right. So what okay. documentaries did two you watch? Two documentaries. The first Quickly. one yeah. is as Canadian as they come. Oh, nice. It was a documentary about the Canadian band Doug and the Slugs. And the documentary is called <laughs> nice. Doug and the Slugs and Me. Oh. And so for our American listeners and Canadian listeners who are very young, 
in the mid 80s and early 90s, there was a Canadian band called Doug and the Slugs. And they had a handful of hits and their songs are pretty catchy and pretty memorable. And believe me, if you've heard them, you'll remember them. Was they that the did, one? I have a question. Was that the one where the lead singer had the bandages all over his head, face? Or was that Mott the Hoople? Uh, that was not Doug and the Slugs, okay, as so far as I know. Okay, so it must right. have been something else. But Doug and the so, Slugs had like, making it work, making it, making it work. a little longer, yeah. making yeah. it work. Yeah, they, they were yeah. great. They had, they had, like, believe me, if you look up their greatest hits and you can have a chance to sample them, you're going to be like, oh, I know that song. Oh, yeah. I know that yeah. song. Like, believe really me, they catchy, were number one across songs, the board. Yeah. Very catchy songs. And their videos were good, too. And so the documentary, <laughs> excuse me, the documentary was made by the best friend of one of Doug and the Slugs' daughters. So the main the main lead singer of the band who wrote all the songs and actually directed all the videos, uh, his obviously his first name is Doug, hence the Doug and the Slugs. He had, I think, three daughters. And one of his daughters, uh, her best friend who lived next door, like basically grew up together. And so the friend had this front row seat of this family where the lead singer of Doug and the Slugs was just a dad as far as she knew. And then years later, she's become a movie director. And so she did this documentary. She reached out to her childhood friend and said, like, I want to do this documentary about your dad and his music career and all that. So so it's not just a, a look back and a retrospective of this um, Canadian music star. It's done from the point of view of someone who genuinely actually knew him and and lived the life and saw him every day for years and years and years. So it has a very personal touch to it. It was actually a really good documentary, very heartwarming tugs on your heartstrings because the, the lead singer for Doug and the Slugs passed away a number of years ago. And so it's this uh, retrospective where uh, they inter- interview the family and the friends and the daughters and they, they read through his journals and it's quite good. And I learned a lot about the the band itself and, and it was a chance to sort of revisit some of that music. So it was quite good. I saw on the documentary channel uh, here in Canada, uh, it's called Doug and the Slugs and me so if you have a chance check it out it was pretty good and then the other one is a documentary series that dropped on netflix just this week four 40 minute episodes it's called pepsi where's my jet and for those who may or may not remember in the mid-1990s pepsi put out a contest where if you drank a whole bunch of pepsi you would earn pepsi points and then you could cash in the pepsi points for free stuff encouraging you to drink more pepsi so you could get better stuff from their catalog well in the commercial there's a kid who takes, he drinks all the Pepsi, he gets all the cool stuff, and then he flies a Harrier jet to school, and he says something like, hey, it sure beats taking the bus. And in the commercial, they say, for 7 million Pepsi points, you can get a Harrier jet. And it's clearly a joke, but there's no legal disclaimer in the ad. So a guy basically watches it and says, a Harrier jet is worth $30 million. I can get 7 million Pepsi points for way less than $30 million. I'm doing this. And so the documentary is about this guy's challenge to Pepsi, where he basically says, I have met all the requirements to earn these 7 million Pepsi points. I want a Harrier jet. And Pepsi, of course, says, we're not doing that. And then there's this legal battle and there's this court of public opinion and all the rest. Of it. it was fantastic. It was so entertaining and so good. And honestly, even though I lived through it, I didn't remember the outcome of this of this thing. And so you watch this thing through. It was great. It was fantastic. It was very entertaining. And as a Coke guy, nothing made me happier than seeing Pepsi sort of, you know, be be made uh, a fool of in this documentary. So, um, yeah, check it out. Pepsi, where's my jet? Four 40-minute episodes. You'll be glad you can do it in one sitting in one night. I, it, it's great. So check it out. Anyway, 
was supposed to be speed round. It took 20 minutes. That's a whole long list of all the things I watched over the last three or four weeks. What about you, Chris? Did you watch one single thing other than the love boat or happy days or WKRP? Uh, sort of. Well, what I did was I took my family to great wolf lodge. You know, that's one of the reasons why we weren't able to do the show. And so I'm at great wolf lodge. And the reason why I mentioned that is because, you know, we're at the water park all day. And then after that, we get back to the room and everybody's like tired. Right. So they go to sleep. So I'm up by myself. And so I'm like, oh man, what am I going to do? I decide I'm going to spend my time doing what I do best, watching an old movie. So I watched Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Nice. Oh, it was on the Tubi app. I love that movie. Oh man. Nice. It's so pretentious though. You know, the Adventure Begins. <laughs> they didn't make any more after that. And then when we got home from Great Wolf Lodge, you know, we get unpacked and I'm like kind of laying around and I flick around the TV and meatballs was on so naturally oh, i watched it again of course and then i watched lethal weapon for the podcast you know that was two nights ago and then last night i watched on golden pond so basically as far as my experience with pop culture goes this week literally nothing has changed since 1985 <laughs> of course not <laughs> you know that's just kind of the way it is oh, oh and i also got this for you here's your Dad joke of the week. I decided to go with a music-related dad joke. Oh, okay. Week. Something a little bit different, all right? So, Derek, how do you tell how heavy a red-hot chili pepper is? Oh, geez. Uh, as a fan of the red-hot chili peppers, I know I'm going to regret the punchline, but I have no idea, Chris, how. Give it away, give it away, give it away, give it away now. Yeah, I was right. I regret that. Give it away. That's nothing but pure and simple communism. <laughs> oh, that sounds familiar. Hal Needham's futuristic masterpiece, Megaforce. With Chuck Norris? No, Barry Boswick and Michael Beck did all the heavy lifting in that one. I'm glad that happened to that guy. F him. I'm going to barbecue your molasses. Thank you. The Southern NASCAR demographic. It's full of bigotry. It's full of racism. It's full yep. of sexism. There's no way you came from my loins. Hey, how cool is this? What in the hell is this world coming to? Uh, so, Derek, so we made it through the entire decade of the 1980s. We did a pop culture fantasy draft for each year of that decade. And like any good fantasy draft, it's a competition, right? So after doing nine years of the draft, I was up five to four. So it all comes down to our last year, which was 1987. So if you win, we end the decade on a tie. But if I win, I get to take home the prize of the best pop culture fantasy drafts, you know, the winner of the decade, right? So we drafted our teams. We sent off our lists to our esteemed panel of judges. And by the way, I just wanted to give a shout out to our judges. They had, they, they had a tough job to do, you know, picking the winners all, every year. And I would like also just like to point out that I've shown the judges nothing but admiration and respect since day one, as you know. Jeez, I think you need to bleep that part out. That is so not true. I've always been kind to them. Uh -huh. I never say bad things about them. But anyway, oh, no, so of not. we sent off our final draft list from 1987 and the judges have spoken. This is going to decide it all. It's either a tie if you win or it's a clean win for me if I win. But the good news is no matter how it winds up, you will not gain the possession of the trophy, the Funko Fonzie. So that's the one good thing. So we got a panel of nine judges. And let me tell you, it was a close vote. The final tally was five to four 
for the winner. Okay, here we go. The winner of the 1987 Pop Culture Fantasy Draft. want to say I take back everything that I ever said negatively about the judges well the better man has won congratulations you you mastered the draft yeah, I, so the draft as, as I've said before I sort of I really flubbed the first couple of drafts sort of misunderstanding how this would work but you you had your finger on the pulse right from day one and you just jumped right in there took an early lead and it's all it is hard to come back when you are in a three to i think it was three to one or a four to one deficit so well you did good you really battled back but uh, it was a lot of fun doing that so we'll have to find something new to do in the new year that's for sure but what we also do then is after we hold our draft as you know we, we go back and forth we each pick one movie from our draft here for us to watch, rewatch, and review and talk about here on the show. So I started things off and I went with Lethal Weapon from 1987. So Derek, just you want to give us like maybe just a quick overview. It's been 30 years, you know, um, plus, oh, 30 over 30 years. Um, have you watched it since then, by the way? Like any in any time recently before watching uh, it this week? I would say it's probably been ooh, at least Five years, probably somewhere between five and ten years since I have watched this movie in its entirety. But it was funny when I was so I own the 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 DVD of Lethal Weapon. I when when Lethal Weapon four came out, they put out a four disc box set, and I thought I'm buying that, and I did. And so when I went to watch the movie this week, I I was like, well, I don't need to watch it on stream. I have the DVD and I'll watch some of the special features and I'm looking for the movie and I I find the box set and there's parts two and part three. Where the heck is part one? Looking, 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 looking. I finally realized we have a stack of Christmas movies off to one side. And sure enough, I have Lethal Weapon in that pile. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I put it in with the Christmas movies. Yet I hadn't watched it over Christmas in quite some time. So, yeah, it's been at least five to ten years since we watched it. And probably the last time I watched it was around Christmas time, which is why it was in the pile with all the Christmas movies. Okay, so we'll come back to that that in a second. But yep. I want to we, we usually like to start things off with the box office from 1987. Any guesses as to what movie was number one at the box office in 1987? It wasn't Lethal Weapon. No, I, I honestly, I, I'll be honest. I cheated. I just today re-listened to our 87 draft and we talked about that in that so i i only know because i just listened to it that it was three men and a baby no it was actually beverly hills cop part two really yeah okay i yep. thought it was three men and a baby and then platoon fatal attraction the untouchables and then three men and a baby three men and a baby did gross like it was the highest grossing film but in that year it only grossed 70 oh okay that's why because I thought it came that. out okay. in late november so right, that was right, the only thing. Right. So if you if you look at movies that actually were released in that year, it was. But in the year 1987, Beverly Hills Cop Part Two was number one. A Lethal yeah. Weapon finished eighth. So the other so thing too is respect. What's that? Quite respectable. Oh yeah, it was very it did very good. Made sixty five million dollars. Now I always like to look at some of the more obscure titles from each year. So if you if you go all the way down to the bottom of the box office chart in 1987, the lowest grossing movie of the year took in a grand total of $410,000, placing 200th 
out of 200 theatrical releases that year. The movie was called Number One with a Bullet. Apparently, it's a it's another cop buddy movie, but this one this one Number One with a Bullet stars the dynamic duo of Robert Carradine and Billy D. Williams. Nice, <laughs> Robert Carradine. He was Louis Skolnick in Revenge of the Nerds. So I, nice. I, I can't imagine why having Lewis from Revenge of the Nerds paired up with Lando Calrissian wouldn't be box office gold. Go figure. But it, yeah, it surprises you sometimes how these things work out. Yeah. But like I said, Lethal Weapon did good. Finished eight at 65 million. Um, but you got to admit, like 1987 was not a great year for big movies. Like there was no single like huge box office giant. Like the le- years leading up to this, remember you had like Ghostbusters or Back to the Future, like something that just dominated the box office. Right, right. But, but this year didn't have it. But Lethal Weapon was released on March the 6th, 1987, directed by Richard Donner. And it starred Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. It was produced on a budget of $15 million. It made um, a little over $65 million at the box office. But it took in $120 million in worldwide grosses. So it was a big hit. And we always talk about how these older movies hold up. So, before I ask you, you know, if the, you think this movie held up, let's just address the elephant in the room, okay? And, it, and let's be honest. It's a great, big, homophobic, anti-Semitic, misogynistic, yeah. racist elephant, Mel Gibson. There was a time when Mel Gibson was one of the biggest movie stars, you know, in the world. Yeah, so, and although he, he was born just outside of New York, he's American, but he studied theater in Sydney, Australia. So he started out doing, you know, small Australian films. Like he was in like Tim and Gallipoli and Mad Max. In 1985, Time Magazine named their first ever sexiest man alive. Guess who? Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. So now I know he's battled alcoholism his whole life. And... Although some of his more offensive rantings have come when he's been arrested, you know, for being, you know, intoxicated in public, like that's never an excuse to me. You know, I mean, God knows I've had too much to drink on a number of occasions <laughs> in my life, but I've never gone off on any misogynistic racist rants. So anyway, based on everything that we know about Mel Gibson, what was it like for you going back and watching him in what I think most people would say is is his most famous role. Yeah, did, did it come into play for you? I guess. It, well, All I mean, stuff not not initially. Again, it's like you say, it's like sort of the elephant in the room. I watched the movie. My wife and I actually watched it together. We watched the movie, and once you dive into it and you just watch it as a piece of entertainment, you sort of strip away the real life of it all because it's not Mel Gibson that's shooting the gun. It's Martin Riggs that's shooting the gun. So you you lose yourself in the characters. You lose yourself in the story. But both before you hit play and after you hit eject, you sort of think, man, this movie is a great movie. It's too bad Mel Gibson screwed things up by being who he is and saying what he said and doing what he did years later. Now, that's not to say that he wasn't secretly like that all along. I don't know. He probably was. Who are we kidding? But in the moment when this came out, this thing was amazing. Like, it spawned three sequels. And 
it, it, like Mel, like you said, like between this and Braveheart, like and Passion of the Christ, like Mel Gibson was the man for a long time. And then he did what he did and he said what he said. And now you're like, hmm, can we ever watch what he did in the past and sort of not think about that? And it's like I tried not to for two hours and I tried to enjoy the movie and I, I think I did, but it was still there at some level. Yeah, it's like when when we had Kean Cruz on, we were talking about TV dads, and we were talking about Cosby and how you've got to like, can you separate the artist from the art? Sometimes it's 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 a tough one. It always kills me how Hollywood is always so willing to whitewash all this crap. Mm-hmm. Like like Mel Gibson was basically blacklisted in Hollywood for about ten years there, you know. But Hollywood loves a comeback, and then it was around twenty fourteen. You know, a whole bunch of people in Hollywood, they're like, well, you know, maybe we should forgive this guy. And then and then he goes and makes Hacksaw Ridge and it gets like six Oscar nominations. It and was really it's good. Like, it's like Mel Gibson's OK again. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. So he's an interesting. Well, guy. like so many other things in the world, it comes down often, unfortunately, to just the dollars and cents of it. They're like, yep. he can make a movie that'll make money. So people are willing to turn, you know, turn a blind eye to some of the things that have been problematic. And like we were just watching um, last week tonight with John Oliver, the season finale was on this past week and he made a crack about Mel Gibson. And he said, like, Mel Gibson made seven Hollywood movies this past year. Seven. Like, what does that tell you about a guy who at one point was like, he'll never work again. Not only is he working, he made seven movies this year. Like, come on. So clearly a lot of people have been able to forgive his past uh, inappropriate discussions, his, his indiscretions and sort of went. Yeah, well, that's what he used to be like, but he can make me money. Let's give him some money and let him make a movie. And the funny because the flip side of this is his co-star, Danny Glover, who is like the opposite, you know, like, you know, he's very likable. And he might be Danny Glover might be one of the most underrated actors of his generation in my opinion. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I think if if you look at if there's an award out there, there's a good chance Danny Glover's been nominated for it. Like. And, and funny enough, though, he's never been nominated for an Oscar. Although he did win the Humanitarian Oscar last year. You know, rightly, rightly so. But he's been nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award. He's been nominated for Image Awards and Film Critics Awards. And he's this accomplished actor in stage and screen. And he has worked steadily over the years. Every yep. single year since 1981, Danny Glover has had multiple movie projects. He's been in a ton of stuff. I think he's underrated because mostly everyone knows him for Lethal Weapon. You know, there was a color purple and witness like, man, he was great in those movies. And I I really love how here in Lethal Weapon, he's like this incredibly likable guy. And in witness, he's just about as scary as as you can get. Like, he's a great actor. But I like I say, I think he's really, really underappreciated by mass audiences. That's what I think. Yeah, he was really good. He had a very small part in. in the movie, the Royal Tenenbaums, the, um, oh my God, the Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Again, it was a huge ensemble cast with so many big names and he was just one of the many names in it. And again, small part, very important to the movie, killed it. And, uh, yeah, like you sort of just forget sometimes that how good he really is. And not to be outdone by Mel Gibson. There's another crackpot weirdo in this cast. And that's oh Gary Busey. <laughs> no, you know it. <laughs> no, I, I, He's I, never looked 
better than he did in this movie. And my God, he probably watches this every night and goes, I wish I still looked like that. Well, I mean, a lot of his issues can be directly attributed to his motorcycle accident that he had in 1988. But he's a weird guy. Yeah, But uh, but I think one thing that gets overlooked with Busey a bit is this is a guy that was an incredibly talented actor before he had that crash. Like, if you look at Milius's Big Wednesday and, and the Buddy Holly story, both were back in, like, 78, he was a really good actor, mm-hmm. you know? He was nominated for an Oscar for the Buddy Holly story. I mean, yep. he, he won the National Society of Film Critics Award for Buddy Holly. And now, I guess he was in DC Cab. Not a which I like. I, I like that. that. I've been looking for it on the streamers, and it's not available. You'll never but find as soon it. As it anywhere. pops back up. I'm watching it. I think that movie just like kind of disappeared. But uh, you know, like I say, probably not a career highlight for the guy. But I, I, you probably say that for anyone that was you know had any part to do with that movie. But I, sure. I will say that like Gary Busey was awesome in this movie as Mr. Joshua. He was amazing. He was really good. God, he yeah. was good in this movie. I, and I love how toward the end of the movie, the the head bad guy dies first yeah so gary Busey, even though he's like the henchman he lives he's the final fight that mel yep. gibson has to overcome to become the hero so so even though he's not like the top bad guy he's the real bad guy in this movie and like they yep. really drive this point home during the climax because he kills two cops on his way to Mur- murtaugh's home to try and kill his family like so like Oh, he was great in this movie. God, he was he was just such a good bag. And that scene with the lighter where he puts his yeah. arm over like it's oh god, he was great. Um I have a couple other members of the cast I want to talk about. Tom Atkins. He played Michael Hunsacker. This guy was a bit of a horror movie staple there for a while back in the 80s. I don't know if you remember, he was in the howling and the fog, and he was in Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. I never saw any of those movies. But I'd he, never seen this guy before or since this movie. He had a small part in Escape from New York. You had me watch that for the, the podcast last year. Honestly, I don't know. He didn't make an impression on me. I don't remember. No, I, I thought he was really well cast as Hunsacker. I thought, yeah, I no, I thought he did a good job as Hunsacker. Yeah. And speaking of Hunsacker, Jackie Swanson, who played Amanda Hunsacker, the daughter. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you recognize her, but she, she was Woody's girlfriend in Cheers. I didn't recognize her from that, but I did recognize her from other, like I, I recognized her, but uh, honestly, I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, yeah, she was Woody's girlfriend. Remember when he wrote that song for her? Kelly, 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 yeah. Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, why? Because I love you. Like I, I recognized her right away and I remembered that. So I thought, but I want to give a couple more quick shout outs from the cast. Mitchell Ryan, he was like the top bad guy. I think they called him the general or something like yes. whatever he was. Yeah, he was um, the bad guy that, yeah. I recognized him. He was the big boss in the law firm in Liar Liar. You ever seen Oh, Liar yeah, Liar? he totally was. No, Remember no. He, he was, yeah, no, that he was in that him. scene when Jim Carrey goes into the boardroom and makes fun of everybody. Oh, And he yes, just starts yes. bursting out laughing. Yes. That's where I recognized him from. Sorry, I thought you meant the guy that was, he was in court against. I'm like, no, no, that no, was the guy no, from no. Alien Nation. No, no, no. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, yeah. He was the big boss. Yeah. Other guy I want to give a shout out to is Grand Bush. He's got a real small part in this. He's always had small parts, but he was one of the cops in the precinct. Um, he was also in Stir Crazy, which is a personal favorite of mine. He was Slowpoke in that movie. And he was in Die Hard. He was Little Johnson. Remember, there was him and Robert Dodd. Oh, yeah. yeah. Little Johnson he's the, he's and Big the Johnson. guy. 
at the beginning of Lethal Weapon where he's like, where the the captain comes by and says, yes. Roger, I liked you better with the beard. And then he goes, oh, yeah, the beard. And then he's like, yes, yeah, some detective. That's the guy, right? Yes. Yeah. And then Nelly, uh, Mary Ellen Trainer, she was a psychiatrist. She was Mrs. Walsh in The Goonies. I don't know if you she was that. also in Die Hard as a psychologist as well. Die I Hard believe that she was. Yes. Yeah. And then I want to say last, but certainly not least, Al Leong, the ultimate yep. 80s Asian henchman. Yeah, he's a he's a that guy. <laughs> oh, for sure. God, he's so good. He's he was the guy also that, in Die Hard. He was in Die Hard and he, he was the guy that uh, tortured Mel Gibson with the car battery jumper cables there. Um, like I say, he's he, not only Die Hard, he's been in a few other movies that we've done on this podcast. He was in Big Trouble in Little China yep. Yep. And, and then this movie, Die Hard and They Live. He was in briefly. Yes. Yeah. Small part. Now, let me tell you, back in the 80s, if you needed an Asian henchman in your movie, you called in. Al oh, yeah. Young. He was no the question. top of the list. Yeah. Um, we want to talk a little bit about the director, Richard Donner. Richard Donner was an interesting guy because he was kind of like this one stop shop as far as directors go. Like he could do everything. He could direct, produce, edit. He cut his teeth back in the in in the 60s in TV. So I think he pretty much learned how to do everything, you know, when it came to producing, you know, projects in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But just a quick list of films that he's directed. The Omen, Superman, The Goonies, Scrooge, and then Lethal Weapon. One of the most Strong financially list. successful directors of all time. Oh, for sure. For Where sure. do you think Lethal Weapon ranks in his body of work, Derek? Because he's done a lot. Honestly, I think it's his, I think it's either his number one or his number two. It depends on if Scrooge has... Mm-hmm. has had more staying power because of its annual recycling because the Christmas movie and depending on how it's done financially. I got to think Lead the Weapons is number one with Scrooge being a very, very close number two and then probably the Superman franchise. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he did Superman one and two. Probably a, a sort of. He Maybe did Superman. the Goonies. I mean. Yeah, the Goonies was, was just such a uh, Gen X staple for me. But I thought Superman might be his best movie like i i thought he did a really good job i mean no superman in the moment for sure i mean the whole thing of believe a man can fly like what he did in the late 70s first comic book superman oh yeah like you can't understate that but looking back now with the context you have of where the marvel movies have brought superhero movies you don't appreciate just how how good it was how good what he was doing actually was when it came out how groundbreaking how revolutionary mm. like you watch it now and you're like hey look christopher reeves is superman you can see the sweat under his armpits like it's those little details where you're like oh that doesn't hold up but in the moment nobody cared it's like oh my mm. god he can fly look i believe he can fly so. now before we get into this movie itself i have a question for you is lethal weapon a christmas movie we have this debate all the time about whether or not die hard is a Christmas movie. But what about Lee the Weapon, Derek? What do you think? Yeah, so I talked about this earlier. And upon watching it just th- this week, I would probably say, no, this is not a Christmas movie, even though part of the movie, like it takes place clearly around the Christmas season. There's Christmas decorations. There's a scene in a, where he goes in the Christmas trees. And I don't know. I, I m- My wife and I talked about this after we just watched it this week. And we sort of went... You know, I don't really think that's as Christmassy as, say, Die Hard that takes place all in one night on Christmas Eve. But so this one, I'm going to say no, but Die Hard, I'm definitely going to keep saying yes. It's interesting because I my wife chimed in on this one and she's like, this is more of a Christmas movie than Die Hard is. 
<laughs> I was like, really? That's it's interesting. funny that she and I are the exact opposite on that. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Keep in mind, I've been getting my wife to watch Die Hard with me every Christmas, you know, for years. And she, like I say, watched this one with me. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I hadn't seen this movie in about 30 years. Wow. I always remember that it took place at Christmas. And I, I always, re- I seem to remember Jingle Bell Rock was in it. But that right was about beginning. it. Like, I didn't really associate it with Christmas overall. But mm-hmm. I think it is a Christmas movie. Because, like, because Christmas is the thing that kind of ties it all together. And I, I guess you could argue that, you know, Christmas is a time for some people to be very reflective and things like that. And it really kind of ties this movie together. So... Yeah, I think I think the elements of the, like the fact this movie takes place at Christmas, if this movie just took place in the in the summer around a July 4th weekend, I don't think it would hit the same notes. So I think cr- the fact that it takes place at Christmas is important to the story, but I don't, again, I don't know if I would call it a capital C Christmas movie, but again, I, I'm not going to fight you on that one. That's that's a conversation. It's like, you know, if you want to call it a Christmas movie, fine. I'm OK with that. So but if you're will... telling me Die, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie, I will fight you on that one. <laughs> and okay, I so this, we this movie gets started with these 3D titles. And right away, I was thinking like like Richard Donner is going back to his Superman bag of tricks. Yep, right for this Superman. one, you know? Yep. But it opens up with that helicopter shot of Los Angeles, and it just keeps yep. moving closer and closer to this apartment building. And then it finally closes right in on this open window of the apartment. And of course, since it's a 1980s movie, there just happens to be a naked woman <laughs> inside yep. the room. It's Kelly from Cheers and the Buff, you know? But she stands up, and then she jumps off the balcony to her death which sets up the whole plot for the movie. Danny Glover is known for his catchphrase in this movie, which he says, I'm too old for this. And I think it's a pretty good catchphrase, but he's got an even better line, at least in my opinion. When he finds out that Mel Gibson is his partner, he says, God hates me. (laughs) And my wife immediately starts laughing when watching this. I've said that before. So uh, obviously I picked it up from watching this movie, you know, like a zillion times back in the 80s. So I thought that was interesting. So I I don't know. I I really like that that line that he does. And um, there's a scene early on. I think it's actually when Danny Glover says God hates me. Him and Mel Gibson are getting a hot dog on the street and they go and get into a car. Yep. And I I don't know if I just because I was watching it on like I've got a big screen TV in my house and I like I'm watching. There's. There's this car full of extras that are in the lane beside them. And every single person in the car is staring directly at the two actors during the scene. And they just keep staring at them for the whole scene. Now, I am not a Hollywood extra, but I do know that you're supposed to blend in. You know, you're not supposed to be conspicuous looking as an extra. And these extras in this scene suck at doing that. Because it's not like Glover and Gibson are doing anything that would, like, make anyone look at them. Right. You know, they're not shooting anyone. They're not having a big argument or something. They're just getting into their unmarked police car, you know, talking and eating a hot dog. So, anyway, that scene really, really jumped out to me. So... When I uh, when I was watching this, there's a few things that jumped out at me. I'll, I'll hit on a couple of them, and then we'll, we'll go back and forth a bit. The music... The, so the whole, the, this firstly, the weapon, uh, I mean, it came out in 87 and it's got like this definitely 80s sort of score soundtrack to it where it's like the saxophone 
Uh, it's like this jazzy, synthy sort of saxophone sound. And that that became the trademark of this film franchise. Like I said, they've done four of these. And um, that that's a big part of it. And so that was one of the things that immediately for me, as soon as I heard that that sort of score with the saxophone, I'm like, okay, this is Lethal Weapon. Like it immediately put me into the movie and it also immediately put me into that late 80s, early 90s sound just because it's so um, so like tied in my mind to this movie. It's one of those ones like when you hear the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme or the the Star Wars theme, it's like you immediately put you in the place of that movie. The, the, not that I think that this um, jazzy, synthy saxophone soundtrack is as good as the stuff that John Williams did for those other movies, but I do think that it really helps um, put you in the moment of this movie. And if you've seen the movie before, it's just that musical cue that's just like, bang, you're back into Lethal Weapon. So that that to me was a big piece right out of the gate that I'm like, okay, we're watching Lethal Weapon. I'll tell you something in this movie that'll throw you back to the 80s awful quick, and that's the smoking that goes oh, on. Yeah. And we've mentioned this before. When it comes to these older 80s movies, there's always a lot of smoking going on. But Mel Gibson smokes like continuously in this movie. I recently saw a meme on social media. It's a photo of Mel Gibson smiling and he's having a smoke. He's got the long hair going. And the words underneath the meme are something to the effect of your mom watching you open Christmas presents in 1985. <laughs> just, I don't know. I just chuckled at Pretty it. much. Yeah, I liked yeah. it. Well, okay, speaking, I, speaking of uh, Mel Gibson so mm-hmm. in the 80s, uh, one of the other things that really jumped out at me for this was his hair. He had oh, that yeah. 80s hair. Oh, yeah. Uh, just, I had a hard time getting past that. It's There's a lot of things in this movie that you're like, if this movie was 10 years later, I wouldn't know any different. Like, this would hold up. But the hair, it was just like, oh, my God, it's so 80s. But, yes. but I mean, it works. It, it works to help set this movie in a time period. It is of the time. And, and when it came out, this was how men wore their hair. Like, if you're cool, your hair looked like Mel Gibson's hair. And but just looking back at it now, I couldn't help but laugh at some scenes where his hair is just so outrageous. I'm like, wow, that's some big 80s hair, Mel. <laughs> it was. I want to talk about some scenes that, that, that I think are important in the movie. So okay. the, the scene with the jumper on the roof. Okay. okay. So Mel Gibson goes up to the roof, tries to talk the guy down, you know, and, and then he goes out there on the ledge. Right. And all the people like below, they're like all freaking out watching out there and this guy up there is he's like he's like get away from me and he threatens to jump you know several times and finally mel gibson just handcuffs himself to the guy yep and the idea you know he's going to prevent him from jumping because like you know he'd be pulling mel gibson down with him i think he says at one point like you're going to be killing a cop yeah so the guy freaks out the bystanders are all freaking it out and then mel threatens to jump and take the guy with him and the guy gets spooked right and then Gibson goes ahead and like jumps and pulls the guy over with him and everyone's like freaking out, you know, and they fall down the side of the building in slow motion. And then they land in this big inflatable air pillow. Yeah. What the hell? Like, did no one see the goddamn air pillow there? Did they not see the cops below laying out the pillow? Did they not see them blowing it up? Like, yeah, they, it, you know, it's, getting, it's one of those fake outs. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so kind of is, it's a bait and switch. You're like, hey, like the, how ju- we- the jumper guy, he would have been like, hey, they're setting up an air pillow down there. I'm going to move, you know, 20 feet down this ledge. So that way, if I actually threaten to jump, it means something, you know, 
I don't know. I just won't be just jumping into this inflatable air mattress thing. That, I don't know. That scene was dumb. I my, my, I mean, my criticism of this, and not that I'm promoting suicide in any way whatsoever, but it's like that was like a six-story building. I'm sorry. If you jump off a six-story building, unless you fall flat on your head and break your neck, you're probably not going to die. You're just going to be very, very, very badly hurt or maimed or crippled. So it's like that was the one thing I'm watching going, why would he threaten to jump off a six story building? Like that seems like that's not going to get anywhere near the outcome you expect. So anyway, I don't know. That was sort of what went my, through my mind. I'm like, Hey, you're going to do it, do it right. Find a 50 story building. Like I love the scene on the bridge when Danny Glover is talking to someone on a, like a, like quote unquote cell phone. Yep. <laughs> the cell phone is massive. So it's, I looked this up. It looks this like is, one of those mobile army phones you yeah, see in like a World War II documentary or something. Yeah. The, the battery for the phone is like as big as a car battery. It's massive. <laughs> and so I was looking this up and apparently this is the first on-screen use of a mobile phone, a modern mobile phone. And so it's like, oh, okay. I mean, now we look back and you laugh at it. as like, what the hell were they thinking? But in 1987, it's like, what do you mean? Wait. He's on a phone, but he's not in a building. Like, what's up with that? Yeah, there's no cord attached to, to a yeah. building somewhere. What's going on? Uh, we've talked about a couple of the scenes where Mel Gibson. So part of the plot is it's like, is he just crazy? Is he suicidal? Is he crazy and trying to draw what they call a psycho pension? Mm-hmm. And so, like, my wife and I are watching it, and she turns to me about halfway through the movie, and she goes, remember back when nobody knew what PTSD was and the fact that you're suffering from this mental illness, nobody really gives a crap. All they can do is make fun of you or like talk about how, Oh, you're crazy. I don't want to work with you. And it's like, that wouldn't fly today. Like it would be like, clearly these, both of these guys were in the Vietnam war and a lot of Vietnam veterans had PTSD and other, you know, mental illness that, that came from it and other problems. And it's like, yeah, that's not addressed at all in this movie because in the time, addressing it wasn't a thing they didn't they didn't know how to address it they didn't know how to what to call it like all the rest of it but it's like clearly you watch it now and you're like of course he's trying to kill himself he's got ptsd between the death of his wife and the things he's done in vietnam and it's just like both of these characters clearly have issues that are sort of scratched in this movie but not really dealt with or addressed in any healthy way and it's just like again just another sort of of its time you know, we talk about, oh, boys will be boys and that kind of thing. In a lot of these movies where you're like, it was acceptable at the time. It's like it, at the time it was acceptable to just be crazy and be like, well, he's crazy. Just ignore it. It'll go away. It's like, no, he needs help. He needs a professional. So <laughs> that's good. That point. stood out to me a lot. Yeah. Um, I like the, the scene when they go to the rich villa, you know, and there's the girls and the cocaine and they shoot the guy and he goes into the plastic yes. cover in the pool. There is a great shot there when the two of them come up from like under the water in the pool and they're like hanging on the side of the pool yes. and there's a Los Angeles skyline in the background. Yes. Really well composed shot. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. it's one that people identify when they think of the movie, you know, because it's in the trailer, that scene's in the trailer. Cause he uh, asked him, he goes, have you ever met someone you haven't killed? And he goes, well, right. I haven't killed you yet. So it's like a memorable line with the back back shot of this great, Greatly composed shot. It's funny. When we watched that scene, I turned to my wife and I said, well, at least they're in Los Angeles. So we know the water of the pool was warm because I've fallen into the pool when we opened it in like April and May when it was like 50 degrees. And believe me, that's not a pleasant experience. <laughs> but cold. if you're in L.A., even in the cooler months like December, it's still going to be a pretty warm pool. Um, the scene when they have dinner at Murtazo's. 
And the oldest uh, teenage daughter there obviously has a crush on yeah. Mel Gibson. I love when the two little kids start rapping. Oh my God. Yeah, the boy so is doing like this like beatboxing and the girl raps about her sister being in love with Martin. I don't know. The, 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 <laughs> the, I love that scene. Makes just, me laugh I, every time. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed that. And then the scene when Dixie's house blows up and they go to talk to the little kids about, about the house blowing up. And they want to know about the guy that was there planting the bomb. And Danny Glover is trying to get information from the one kid. Yeah. Oh, this they, is Alfred. Look, yeah. everybody, it's Alfred. <laughs> everybody, what yeah. this is Alfred. Because he, first of all, he says, what's your name? And the other kid goes, don't tell him your name, Alfred. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay, <laughs> it's Alfred. And he's like, how old are you? And the other kid covers his mouth and goes, six. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was funny. And I, I really, I've always liked how Glover talks to them and when and when he's talking about the tattoo mm. on the on the, the, the guy that planned the bomb and he's like is it like Popeye no 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 not like Popeye I don't know why yeah. I like it I just love the way he delivers that line so yeah no it's good um I want to say there was uh so when we watch movies often if it's a decent movie and it's got good writing there are often memorable quotes from the movie and things that become a part of our personal lexicon and one of the things I realized when I watched this movie, not a movie I expected to to have many of those kind of call outs, but I realized early in the movie, Danny Glover puts on his tie and he goes down to the kitchen and he says to the wife and he's like, what's this spot on my tie? And she goes, that is an ugly spot. My wife and I reference that line all the time. Whenever we're trying to clean something in the house or something's dirty and you go, what's this? And you just go, that is an ugly spot. And I realized that this movie is where we got that from. And it, I no recollection of that until I actually just watched it again this week. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's where we pulled this from. So <laughs> it's like me of, with of my, all my God things, hates me thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like of all the quotes of this movie, that's the one that has stuck with us. And I don't think that the writers had any intention for that to be like a long lasting thing. But it's just funny how you pick up on some little detail in a movie and it's like now it's a part of your ongoing life. So. It just made us laugh. Now that you're mentioning quotes, one thing I liked was, remember when Mr. Mr. Joshua shoots uh, Mel Gibson with a shotgun Mm -hmm. and he like falls down and he's knocked up, but he's wearing the bulletproof vest. I like when he comes to and he's like, he kind of gets his senses about him. Then he's like, oh man, that hurts. And he's like, oh, now I'm pissed. (laughs) I just just (laughs) love the way he did. That's his reaction. I always thought it was good. One thing I want to mention about this movie too, the station wagon. Okay. The station wagon that Danny Glover drives out in the desert when he goes to get his daughter back from the kidnappers. Mm-hmm. It's a 1978 Ford LTD Country Squire. And it's got the roof racks on it. When I was growing up as a teenager, my best friend had one of these. And his, his dad used to call it the magic wagon. because <laughs> Sometimes it would come home and grass was growing out of the bottom of it. <laughs> sometimes the bumper would magically change shapes like we put that car through its paces man we used to go to bush parties and go on tours and all this so i i know it's not cool but it was the 80s but i just i saw that that station wagon i'm like oh my god it's the magic wagon so that nice. was like, it stood out nice. to me. a couple of things i noticed too there were a few movie marquees i spotted yes in yes. the background of some of the shots you notice those too one was the lost boys and it says like the hit of the year the hit of the year. Yeah. And it was also distributed by Warner Brothers who distributed this film. So that was definitely oh, that deliberate. The yeah. other one that stood out to me was Debbie does Dallas. 
What's I'm not familiar with that particular franchise. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, is that about a real estate agent moving yeah, to Dallas? Yeah, it is. It was. It was, it was okay. from a few years before, probably around the late 70s. You know, this porn film, right? Um, great final fight scene between Gibson and Busey, I thought. I like how they're both these special forces army guys. So they're like amazing fighters, especially with hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. And in the end, it's the figure four leg lock that brings down Gary Busey. I thought that, that scene was really good. I mean, in retrospect, watching it, I sort of like, again, my wife and I turned to each other and went, this would never happen today. Like there's, there's no way the guy killed two police officers. There's no way that every, all the other cops wouldn't immediately just jump on him or straight up shoot him. You kill cops, bam, you're done. Well, it's because so. it was because, um, uh, Danny Glover's character was saying, yeah. stop, stop, go back. I'll take responsibility. Just, just let them go. Let them go. Right. So I guess they were deferring to him. He was an older guy on the force. So yeah, they, sure. they kinda, I guess that was the idea there. Um, and I want to mention when the credits start to roll, they start to roll with Jingle Bell Rock. And then it's like five seconds into the song and it changes to Lethal Weapon by Honeymoon Suite. Yeah. Honeymoon Suite, I've mentioned this before. They're, first of all, they're Canadian. Yeah, love them. Such an underrated band. You know, Definitely. I, I mentioned that on the episode that we did. I did with Yancey with bands that should have been bigger, but their song doesn't even start at the beginning of the credits. Yeah. And then the they thing really is, got hosed on that. One. Oh, yeah. and then even more so if you wait till the end of the credits, like I did, they only list three songs in the credits that are in the movie. And guess what? Lethal Weapon by Honeymoon Suite ain't one of them. Really? They didn't even wow. make the credits like no respect. I tell you. So uh, that's craziness. Okay, one last thing I want because I obviously we're running a little long here tonight. Um, Murtaugh, the movie that starts with Murtaugh celebrating his 50th birthday. Yes. Chris, you're over 50 now. I am. Right. Yes. And I, I'm getting close. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I are watching the movie and we started looking at each other going, does he seem 50 to you? I was like, he seems a hell of a lot older than 50, given what 50 year olds are like today for the most part. And then I looked it up in the thing. He was only 40 when he made this movie. He was playing a guy who was 50. Oh, and in my mind, he looked like he was 60. <laughs> so, uh, there is a different perception had... of age yeah. back in the 80s, though. Like, definitely. Definitely. Time, so, you know, people yep. that we thought were like young weren't and people that we thought were older were like, it was just like, like, I mean, right now I'm the same age as Wilford Brimley was when he made Cocoon. Okay, so I'm Wilford Brimley old. So, I mean, I just think our whole perceptions of, you know, age back then was was different. Um, so just as a wrap up for this movie, I feel like this movie is sort of more than the sum of its parts. Yes, like If, if you fair. really look at it, there's not a single original thing about this movie. You know, there's guns and car chases and cops and bad guys and boobs. We can't forget boobs. It was the 80s. After well, it was all. the 80s, yeah. And but, smoking. Yeah, they're smoking. Like, even though, like, there's nothing really original here, it's super entertaining. Like, I really, really enjoyed watching this movie again. I thought it was great. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Again, I, I, I've i seen it probably in the last five years or more. I, I've probably seen it a dozen times, but it's been a while. And part of the reason I think I hadn't rewatched it more recently was the whole Mel Gibson of it all. Yeah. But, uh, but watching it again, you really realize, like, there's a reason this movie was a hit and why they made sequels and why it made Mel Gibson famous. Like there's a lot to like about this movie. Once you get past the Mel Gibson of it all. I think the direction is great. The action is great. And especially I think the casting was great 
in this movie. I feel like the casting needed to be great in this movie because there's so much going on and there's so much action that I think lesser actors could kind of get lost in the shuffle here. Yeah. But I think the whole cast top to bottom was just perfect. So I I I really enjoyed strong casting. Yeah. No. You want to give it a rating out of 10? Yeah, I would say. I'm going to be probably between a seven and a half and an eight. I would probably say an eight. It was pretty strong. Wow. Very it, good. it holds up pretty well. Yeah, that's good. I'll give it a seven. I'll give it a seven out of 10. I thought it was, I thought it was quite good too. Yeah. So. No, it was, it's entertaining. It's, it's worth a rewatch and it's, uh, it, it's good. I mean, it, it is what it is. It's in the best possible ways. All right. Well, so wrapping up the movie, it's time now. Fun with caveman. All right, this was my movie that I picked, so it's over to you, Derek. Uh, what uh, what trivia or what fun do you want to have with me this week? All right, so <laughs> as I mentioned a few times already, mm-hmm. yes, this movie was quite successful, and they made a bunch of sequels. In fact, there mm-hmm. are four, exactly four, Lethal Weapon okay. movies. So I'm going to ask you some trivia about other series that have had exactly four movies. No more, no less. I'm not going to ask you, like, how many Marvel superheroes movies were there? Oh, there's been 30-something. Four. The answer is four. How many movies are in these series? I'm going to give you a very tongue-in-cheek, loose description of the series. And all I need you to do is tell me the name of the series. If you can name off some of the the movies, the sequels and stuff, great. Then, as a bonus question for each series, I want you to tell me how many years there was between the first one and the last one. Oh, God. (laughs) That's just bonus, bonus prizes. Okay. Uh, I got I got 10 movies, uh, 10 movie franchises here and we'll see how you do. Right. Most of these are pretty recognizable franchises. Even if you maybe haven't seen them before or seen all of them, I think you'll get many of them. Okay. All right. You ready? So these are all movie series with four, four. installments. Four installments. Okay. All right. Okay. You ready? Yep. Uh, let me see. Where do we want to start? Let's start with a nice, easy one. Okay. And, and let me finish the whole question because some of them you may know right away, but let me finish the whole right. question yeah, before no, you jump in. Ahead. Okay, four movies. Okay, despite their actual danger and ferocity, the villain of this story is only responsible for one fatality every two years. What series am I talking about? Hmm. I, I would. I, I, would, I thought it might be Halloween, but there's been so many. Um... I don't know. Jaws. One fatality every two years? I looked it up. Average sharks kill only one person every two years. Oh, see, I I thought of Jaws when you mentioned that, but I I was thinking, like, but Jaws, the shark, killed, like, five people in the first movie alone. Well, that's what I said. Despite what the movies would have you believe in real life, there we go. So, bonus question for you, then. How many years difference between the first Jaws movie and the last Jaws movie? Well, the first one came out in 1975 and Jaws 4 would have came out in 1985. I'll say 10 years. Close. 12 years. Jaws the Revenge, the fourth movie, came out in 87. 87. Oh, okay. All right. So you got past that one. All right. Uh, The next one. This outsider and the million dollar baby both learned that wax off is not actually slang for masturbation in this martial arts series. Uh, it would be. Oh, let me just think about that for a second. That would be the Karate Kid. Yes. 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 So bonus points. How many years between the first Karate Kid movie and the last Karate Kid movie? 
Oh man, that's a tough one because the first one I know came out in 1984 and yep. I've been kind of being consistent with this. So I got to go ahead and say the next one is in 1994. I'll say 10 years. You're exactly right. 10 years. Nice. <laughs> Nicely done. A bit the last guess, one was but... called the next karate kid. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was oh. the one with uh, Hillary Swank was the girl. Right? The million dollar yeah. baby herself. Yeah. 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 All right. An adventurous teacher verifies the existence of magic, God, and aliens in this series. Is it the Indiana Jones series? Yes. Yes, it is. All right. Nice. So, how many years between the Uh, first and last Indiana Jones movies? Okay, so the first one came out in 1981. Yes, it did. Obviously. Um, I did not watch the fourth one, but it it came out in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. I'll say 2005. So, that's what I'll go with. Nope. It came out in 2008. The last one, Indiana Jones, The Kingdom of Crystal Skull, 27 years in between the first one and the last one. No. Okay. And I do believe they are in the process of making a fifth one, but it hasn't come out yet. I heard that. That's just stupid. Okay. All right. Here we go. This this one a little newer for you here. So, Saturday Night Live alums and their friends lend their voices to classic monsters such as the Invisible Man, Frankenstein's Monster, the Wolfman, and Dracula in this cartoon series about the hospitality industry. Um, Is it Hotel Transylvania? Yes, yes it is. I only know that because my kids watch it, and I don't know how many years. I will say the first one came out in... Uh, 2011, and the next one came. The last one came out in 2021, so I'll go with 10 years again. You're right with 10 years, but you were off by one year on both. It was 2012 for the oh. first, and 2022 for the last one. Yeah, yeah 10 not years. Bad. Not bad. Nicely done. Got them both. All right. Uh, let's move on to this one. Having young kids pays off sometimes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Trivia. Okay. <laughs> Aging, I, don't, I don't watch those movies, so. All right, here we go. Aging action stars well past their prime lean into nostalgia as they cash in for one less paycheck or two or three or four. Is it the, it's not the Expendables, is it? It is absolutely the Expendables. <laughs> That's a total guess. <laughs> I couldn't tell you the difference. The, I, I know they made, they made multiple of these. I they never, made four. They made I exactly heard of, I didn't got, you're, 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 you're teaching me something that they did it for. I thought they did like two of these or something. I don't know. So I don't know how many years. Uh, it was um, 13 years. Uh, the first one came out in 2010. And yeah. the fourth one, although it hasn't been released yet, is slated for early release in 2023. So nicely done. You got both of those. Nice. Checks. Uh, or no, you didn't get the years, but you got the other one. Okay. You're going to love this one. Ah, you know, I'm going to save that one because I, I like that one. Okay. So here we go. Uh we wish the protagonists of this series could use their mind erasing gadgets on us after we were forced to sit through the third and fourth installment of this series based on a comic book. Was it Men in Black? Yes, yes, it was. I just I only got that because of the the um, the racing thing, yep. um, because they did one just recently a couple of years ago. Yes, the, they did. Uh, the first one was uh, Men in Black. Was like. 97 if i remember yep, correctly it exactly was 97 You're okay correct. and the most recent one was a couple of years ago so i'll go with uh 2020 you're off by a year it came out in 2019 so oh, it's 22 so years close. between them oh, close so though close not bad, not bad. nice all right 
Uh, how many we got left here? I got four left. Okay. Originally conceived as a trilogy, the directors revisited their most successful franchise for a fourth part follow-up that actually worked. Unfortunately, no one can be told exactly what part four is about, but taking a red pill will help. Uh, it's gotta be the Matrix, right? It is absolutely the Matrix. I know that because yes. it's like Yancey's favorite you know, movie ever. Um, I know they did like three of them. The first one was good. The, the next two were crappy, and then they made another one recently. So you want me to, I know the first one was 1999. Yep. <sighs> most recent one, I don't know. I'll say 2020 again. Again, off by one year. It's oh, 2021, oh, The Matrix so Resurrections. So 22 years between the first one and the last one. Wow. You got the main, you, you didn't get the bonus points, but you got the other one. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, this was a little older. This might actually fall into your wheelhouse. This black exploitation film franchise features the character Youngblood. No, not the hockey player, but a cocaine dealer who is trying to quit the underworld drug business. Ooh, that's a good one. It's, I. I can't think of it though. I don't know. It's the Superfly franchise. Oh, Superfly. I only thought they made one of those. They made four of them. I, although I, I suspect <laughs> the last one is probably a remake or a reimagining or a next generation, but according to my homework, that's what they did. So how many years do you think before oh, the God. original Superfly and the latest The iteration? only one I can think of was like early 70s, so I yep. wouldn't be able to tell you what the other ones were. I have no idea. All right, Superfly came out in 72, Superfly TNT, 73, and then The Return of Superfly in 1990, and then I assume as a remake, Superfly in 2018, 46 years from Does start Does a remake finish. count as like a fourth installment? Well, I again, I don't know if it's a remake or just like a yeah. next generation sequel. There, there was a handful of movies that were sort of like that. So, right. All right, uh, second to last one, this one's... I will accept two completely different franchises because they both fit the clue. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. This superhero series started strong with a credible director behind the camera for the first two films, only to see the franchise slip and fall to its death in parts three and four. Ooh, would it be Superman? Superman is one of the correct answers. Okay. How many years? between the first and last Superman movie. Okay, the first one came out in 1978, if I remember yep. correctly. And the fourth one, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, would have came out in 89? Nope, you're close. 87. Oh, so it was nine, nine years from start to finish for Superman. Wow. Uh, there was another film franchise that also fits the description. Got any guesses? Would it be Spider-Man? Nope, it no. would not. Uh -oh, but I would have it? accepted Batman, the Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher, oh, Batman. Yes, there were yes, four. Batman, yes. Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. The first one came out in 89. The last one came out in 97, which was eight years from start to finish. So, all right. Last one. Okay. And you got you to wait for me to finish reading the whole question because I know course. you're going to know. Despite part one being terrible, this film franchise about the hijinks of camp counselors and the campers lived on for four installments, each worse than the one that came before it. But part one is still one of Chris's all-time favorite films. Okay, so this is where you're throwing me for a loop because you're saying the first one was no good and the first one was fantastic. And I think it's Meatballs. 
It is Meatballs. Yeah, the first one was not awful. It was great. And it came out in 1979. It did. Um, recently, uh, I mentioned that I had watched, I've never watched any of these sequels. But Meatballs Part 2, I watched a bit recently. I put it on. I was like, you know, I wasn't feeling good there in the summer. And uh, so I'm like laying around. I put the movie on. I thought, I got to finally watch Meatballs Part 2. I had to turn it off. It was garbage. And then Meatballs 4, if I remember correctly, had, oh, it had like, what's that guy's name from, oh, he was in Camp By Me Love and. Uh, yeah, Patrick Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey. And it was like. I've actually were, seen that one. It ugh, is so bad. So awful. Like just it is garbage. Terrible. But it wasn't a huge difference in time. So I want to say that they wrapped it up by like early 90s so i'll say like by 91 the fourth one was oh so close 92 oh, it was 13 so, years yeah. so it was yeah. meatballs 1979 meatballs yeah, part two in 84 meatballs yeah. three summer job in 1986 yeah. and then meatballs four 1992 so, so you did very well on those you went uh you went eight out of ten on the questions and you got about half of the bonus ones you were pretty close you knew when all of them started you just got a couple of the last ones wrong of course i'm gonna know when all of them start because you know that of course of course yeah. nice so obviously this time derek it was over me to pick you know a movie for our draft year and watch so that means next time it out it's, it's your turn to pick a movie from 1987 so so derek what movie would you like me to go back and watch and then we'll come back and talk about from 1987 so I was all set to have you watch Beverly Hills Cop Part 2, which I love, and I've seen it, you know, 20 times or more, and I think it's great. But I was just listening to one of our older episodes. I think it was one of the greatest hits episodes, and we were talking about, like, movies we hadn't seen, and and um, you were talking about planes, trains, and automobiles, or maybe it was in our 87 draft. You were talking about planes, trains, and automobiles, and yeah. I kept saying, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I and, I mentioned that in our draft as my personal pick. Yeah. yeah, and so I have not seen it, but I actually have it on my PVR right now, and as it turns out, it was on TV today on, mm. I want to say, AMC, like back-to-back. -back, they just kept showing it over and over again, so Having never seen it before, I got to think it takes place around Thanksgiving, which is why it's been on TV this week because it's yes. American Thanksgiving. So, you know what? Normally, I would have you watch a movie that I love. Something that rather, you're really I'd familiar with. Yeah, yeah, I'd rather do a movie I've never, ever seen before. Cool. So, that let's works. do that. Let's do Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. All right. I've never seen it. I know you've seen it before. Let's come back and talk about it next week. I've heard great things about it. I remember you know not too vividly i remember the trailer so i know a couple of the scenes a couple of the gags but two minute trailer does not explain a two-hour movie so i'm looking forward to this i like steve martin i like john candy honestly i don't know who else is in it we'll come back next week and talk all about it no it's it's it really is it's just that it's 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 the two of them but Edie mcclurg has a really memorable scene in it too and i like steve martin as well and i love john candy as i always mentioned to you john candy always had a bit of an edge to him but in this one this was a one movie where i felt that he could make you laugh and, and also break your heart in, in almost even in the same scene i think you're gonna like this i think you're gonna like that movie a lot it'll be interesting we'll come back next time we'll watch planes trains and automobiles and when we review it but until then this is chris mcbrine on behalf of myself uh and derek myers saying thanks for listening to pop goes your world the pop culture podcast for the generations
Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 